on towards, uh, towards the cross and Easter Sunday and our Easter series. Uh, inspired by that photo blog I introduced some of you to last week, Humans from, uh, from New York, we are looking uh, at Humans of Jerusalem. Hoping to do for the humans of Jerusalem what that photo blog, Humans of New York, has done for the people of New York, which is help everybody to see the humanity in those that you kind of brush by on the street, to appreciate, have empathy, empathy, and maybe see a little bit of yourself and others. Now, as I said to you last week, and I think this is true especially at Christmas and Easter, our familiarity with the story tends to rob it of its historicity. As I showed you again last week, it's actual verifiable history. Last week we looked at the only, every, every archaeologist pretty much agrees, the only tomb, the, the verifiable tomb of somebody in the Easter story. Actually, the only verifiable tomb of anybody in any, any of the biblical accounts. And there's all kinds of extra biblical support and eyewitness accounts for all of these stories. But time robs the story of its historicity, and it robs the, the humans in the story of their humanity. It's just the way it is. Over time, they become either sanctified saints, right? Or they become, in some sense, personifications of evil itself. And that's just not true, because they were very real human beings, just like you and I, who were forced to make re very real, difficult decisions at the crux of human history. My premise, this story is not just historical, but it, that it is, and you'll see this on Good Friday, contemporary in nature. Their choices then are the same choices you and I face now. Their story, their choices that first Easter can and should, they should inform our choices this Easter. I think by the time we're done, you'll discover we have more in common with each of them than maybe you thought. Now, here's one thing I learned this week that I had in common with the folks that were in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, and I know you do too. In any given situation and at any given time, I have one thought, one question that rings in my head. Sometimes it's consciously, but most of the time it's, it's subconscious. It's much more subtle. It can be summed up, and if you, if you know me, you've heard me talk about this. It can be summed up with the moniker WIFM, W-I-F-M. Now, the staff knows this. My kids have heard it, what it stands for, WIFM. I first became of the, uh, aware of the WIFM principle in 1989. I was part of the management training class of First Fidelity Bank, and they brought in a professional public speaker to teach us how to make presentations. And he told us what I have handed down now over time. In fact, it's a principle I still use today. The truth is, I'm using it right now. He said, any time a speaker gets up to address a crowd of people, the speaker needs to know that there are two questions that play in everyone's head that you must answer if you want to be effective. He used the acronyms WIP and WIFM. He told us that because your audience they're human beings. This is what's going through everybody's head the minute you stand up. They want to know two things. Whip, what's your point? And whiff them, what's in it for me? Why would I care? This thought process, what's in it for me, I, I mean, think about it. At one level or another, it is the core thought behind, behind almost every decision we make. 
I would argue your answer to that question, what's in it for me, is why you chose the college you chose, the sport you play, the food you eat, the job you're in, the diet you follow, the amount of kids you've had, who it is you married. With them is even behind who you are sitting with today. That question, what's in it for me, it informs almost every decision a human being makes. It is a very natural question. It is a very powerful question. It's a very common question because it's a very human question. And I'll give you one more thing. And I want you to watch this as this morning plays out because all of us ask this question. That question unbalanced and unchecked, it's a very dangerous question. Now, I do a lot of marriage counseling. Uh, that's probably, other than writing talks, that's probably what I spend the most of my time on. This question, what's in it for me, is behind almost every marital, marital difficulty. Think about it, right? We, we've all been told that when, when we meet our soulmate, then they will complete us. There has never been a bigger bunch of garbage hoisted on the American public than that. But that is behind every, every marital struggle, right? I mean, when I married you, I thought this was what I was getting, but it turned out what I got was this. This isn't what I signed up for. You're not completing me. You're not even completing the laundry, let alone me. You're not meeting my needs. I signed up for this. See, what's in it for me is, is not just a good public speaking tool. Well, it is a good public speaking tool. It's just not a really good life tool. One of the things we discover as we walk through what a marriage looks like, right, is with them is a terrible way to go into a marriage. We all do, but that's not what love is. Love is not what I can get for you, right, from you, right? It's something quite different. With them, it's a very human question, and it sits at the heart of what I, 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 you and I know as the Easter story, and its chief antagonist, a very human being you may have heard of from Jerusalem. His name was Judas Iscariot. Judas, right? It just, you hear it, and it gives you this visceral reaction. Funny part is that I wouldn't need to give you his last name, right? I mean, if I had just said Judas you would have known exactly who I meant. I mean, when you can be identified by one name, you know you've made it. Jordan, Madonna, Beyonce, Judas. What's super interesting, though, is that in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, you definitely would have needed another name. Did you know that in Jesus' day, Judas was likely the most popular name in all of Israel? Israel? only rivaled by Joseph. In fact, there were actually two disciples named Judas. That's why we needed a last name for Iscariot. And Jesus has a half-brother named Judas. That's how prevalent the name was. Now, watch this. Joseph remains a very popular name. Can I ask you, here's the crowd participation part. Would you raise your hand if you know anybody named Joseph? Raise your hand if you know anyone named Joseph, which is just about every single one of you. Now, raise your hand if you know, one, know someone named Judas, which would be none of you. Of course you don't, right? Because according to babynamer.com, Judas is ranked the 5,379th most popular boy's name in the United States of America. To quote, I love this, this is what it says about Judas, uncommon, Judas would be a striking name choice. 
Why? Because Judas has one adjective permanently attached to his name. In fact, Judas winds up being more of a noun than a name. To be a Judas is to be a? You all know it, right? But you need to know it wasn't always that way. In fact, the Judas that you know was given this second name, Iscariot, to make sure he stood out from all other people for all of time. Judas Iscariot, Iscariot likely just means that he was from a town in Galilee. That was where he was from, kind of like Jesus of Nazareth, Judas Iscariot. Judas, I make no bones about it. Judas, Judas I'm not here to do character rehab on Judas. Judas was a traitor. But you know what else Judas was? A human being. He was not, right, uh, evil personified. He was a human being who wrestled with the very same questions that you and I do. What's in it for me? And it led Judas like it can lead you and me to very, very dark places. Now, he, has, he wasn't always the guy that you think he was. I mean, Judas was at once one of the main guys. He was one of the original 12. And as I understand it, most theologians, theologians would say that Jesus was closest to Peter, James, and John. That's who kind of his real inner circle was. But there's good reason to believe that Judas might have been next for a couple of reasons. Of the 12 disciples of Jesus, only Peter gets more lines of coverage from the gospel writers than Judas. And I mean, as I always say, enter the story, right? Judas, Judas would have walked with Jesus and seen all of the miracles. You know, Judas helped feed the 5,000. He served with the other disciples. He went out, Jesus sent Judas out into the other cities to proclaim the kingdom of God. For a long time, Judas' reputation was very different. He was a student. He was a, he was a companion of Jesus. He, he lived with the other disciples and Jesus for the better part of three years. He walked miles along dusty roads with these missionary comrades. He, he ate with them. He sat around evening fires with them, talking about the kingdom of God. He prayed with them night after night. Judas heard more of Jesus' sermons than almost anybody he received personal instruction from Jesus. Judas saw the Father provide all of their needs over and over and over again. All during the time Judas was part of the Twelve, he mostly said and outwardly performed the right things. It's astonishing, really, if you look at the Scriptures, none of Judas's fellow disciples perceived that he was deceitful in any way. Even when Jesus dismissed him later on in the story from, from um, that Last Supper meal, they assumed that Judas was going off to help the poor somewhere. As you'll see in a minute, Judas was put in charge of the money bag. Judas was the treasurer of the organization, which leads you to believe there were few people in the inner circle who were more trusted than Judas. You didn't know that about him, did you? So what happened? How do you go from Judas to Judas? Well, we don't actually know for sure, but what we do know is when things seem to start going the wrong way. And we also know, like we saw last week, what became for Judas his breaking point. Now, if you were here last week, last week we looked at Caiaphas, the Jewish high priest. And when things started to go the wrong way for Caiaphas, and, and that was 
when Jesus came riding into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And if you remember, when Jesus comes into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, he goes right into the, the temple, to Caiaphas' temple, and he starts overthrowing temples, or excuse me, tables. And that's when Caiaphas and the others, the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, they all got together and started plotting Jesus' demise. Now, the straw that broke the back for Caiaphas, though, was not what he did in the temple. It wasn't Jesus' teaching. It wasn't blasphemy or treason as the, the charge they trumped up against him. What was too much for Caiaphas to handle was an act of love and compassion. It was when Jesus raised his friend Lazarus from the dead. That was last week, but Judas' story is actually almost eerily familiar you see, Judas was with Jesus and the other disciples as they rode in that last week into Jerusalem, that Passover week, that Palm Sunday. And my guess is this is around the time when things started to make a turn for Judas. Matthew, this is super interesting, okay? Matthew, the Jewish tax collector and well redeemed traitor to his country. I mean, if anybody, you know, all the, dis all the disciples, if you had gone to them and said, hey, which one of you is the traitor? I think they all would have pointed at Matthew. Why? Because Matthew was a Jew himself who before meeting Jesus had turned and sided with Rome for his own benefit. What was in it for Matthew was that he used the threat of Rome's power and punishment and he would collect taxes from his fellow Jews for the Romans and he would kick, uh, keep a kickback portion for himself. Matthew, who had Judas's reputation then, it was Matthew who writes this. He says, a very large crowd, and that's always the problem, a very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? Well, Judas, the disciples, and I would say many in the crowd, knew the answer to this question. At least they thought they did. This, they were declaring with their words, was the long-promised Messiah of the Jewish people and the nation of Israel. That's what they thought. In fact, Matthew reveals that this is what they thought. When he looks at Jesus taking this ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, Matthew quotes a Messianic Old Testament prophecy. This took place, he said, to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king, there it is, king, comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And it wasn't just the disciples, it wasn't just people like Matthew that were going, oh, this is Jesus revealing himself as the Messiah. Many of the people knew it too. That was why they cried out what they did. Hosanna to the son of David. That's actually directly from Psalm 118, another messianic prophecy. So the disciples and the people share one common assumption, and they're right, that Jesus was the long-promised and waited for Messiah, and Jesus was letting them all know it was true. But they also shared one significant misunderstanding. They thought that the Messiah was going to come and save Israel from its current oppression under Rome, that it would overthrow Rome and return Israel, their nation, to its past dominance and prominence the way it was under their great King David and Solomon. And so when Jesus comes into town, everybody, big crowds, a very large crowd, come running out, and everybody acknowledges the Messiah has finally come, and Jesus doesn't shut them down. They assume this is the coming out party. 
He's going to head right. I mean, if you're there, right, you're thinking, this guy is going to head right to the Roman magistrates in town and lead an insurrection. But that's not what he did. He heads right to the temple and he starts throwing over tables. Now, that's not what Caiaphas thought was coming, nor was it what the disciples thought was coming, including Judas. See, he didn't start trouble with the Roman rulers, which is what they expected and really wanted. He started trouble with the temple priests. What was even more offensive is Jesus didn't seem too bothered by the Romans. He actually didn't mind them. Which, of course, if you're expecting the Messiah to set you free from Rome, I mean, let's be honest. This is not working out the way I thought it was going to work out. I mean, enter the story, right? You're in Ukraine right now, and the Messiah comes riding into town. And thousands of people rush out on the hillside of Ukraine, and they go, here it is, our Savior. And he seems uninterested in what Russia is up to. What? And look, this is where Judas is at this moment. Wait a minute, I thought, Jesus, you just let everybody... And so he's a human being. He's frustrated, he's disappointed. He's wondering, is Jesus who I thought he was? Maybe he's just a little slow on the uptake. Some people think Judas betrayed Jesus to try to move him along. Jesus' timetable wasn't matching up with Judas's. But you know what's at the heart of Judas's disappointment, don't you? With him. What he thought was in it for him, all of a sudden he starts to go, wait a minute. It might not be. And with him can lead to wrong timetables, bad conclusions, and dark places. But look, here's what we know. It wasn't, this is important to understand, I think. It wasn't just Judas. I know, I know. Why? Because there were a lot of other human beings in Jerusalem. And every human being asks with them too. I mean, some of you know the rich young ruler, right? He comes to Jesus, he wants eternal life with them. And Jesus says, okay, here's the deal. I'll give you the deal. Sell everything you have and follow me. Mm, Don't like that deal. I'm out. I can get a better deal. What's in it for me? Some of you know the story of Jesus Jesus feeding the 5,000, right? I mean, and that was just 5,000 men, likely. I mean, there could have been 15,000, 20,000 people there. I mean, Jesus is a big deal at this point. And the next day, the people are hungry again. And Jesus, in an attempt to get them to understand what they really need more than anything, is him. The sacrifice that was coming of his flesh and his blood for their sins. And he says to them, look, what you really need is to drink and eat of me. And what does everybody do? With them. Whoa, 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 I wanted food. I'm not really interested in you. And they all walk away, except for the 12. And look, speaking of those 12, they struggled with with them too. You know how I know? Well, number one, they were human beings. Number two, this is so good, okay? If you want to see with them deeply at work in, in the disciples, these are the ones we hold up as the sanctified saints, right? But Judas is the, you know, he's, he's a reprobate, right? Here's, here's the, 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 the uh, disciples. Literally, right after Jesus challenges the rich young ruler, and the rich young ruler does his little whiffum calculation and walks away, I love what Peter says. Peter goes, hey, we've left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? 
what's in it for us. Almost word for word. I mean, come on, right? You ask that question in your relationship with God. God, if I go to church on Sunday, you know, I could sleep in. It's kids' sports on, on Saturday, God. I only get one day. If I go on Sunday, what's in it for me? I mean, God, it, you, you, you seem to have a claim on my time and my money and my finances and my body and my relationships. And look, I might be willing to accede to that claim and put you first in those things, but I really, God, got to get clear on something first. If I do that, then what's in it for me? What's the deal? I mean, God, explain the deal to me. Let me, let me understand the deal because I want to evaluate if it works for me. And of course, God, I mean, we never say this, but isn't it true? God, I reserve the right to change my mind if a, if a better deal or a better job or a better girl or a better investment or a better guy comes along. And that's where Judas is. And most of the disciples. And it began with Jesus riding into Jerusalem and outing himself as Messiah, but not doing anything. He outs himself as Messiah, and he doesn't do anything all week about it. But the straw that broke the camel's back for, for them, it was just like it was for Caiaphas. It was not something Jesus taught. It was this crazy act of compassion and love. Now, here's what we know. While Caiaphas and the elders are at Caiaphas's house, gathering and plotting how to kill Jesus, about a mile and a half away or so, in Bethany, a suburb of Jerusalem, Matthew, who was there, says this. While Jesus was in Bethany, in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. Now, just an interesting little thing, right? An alabaster bottle was sealed at the top. It was, you know, kind of a ceramic seal at the top, right? And so in order to get the perfume out of the jar, what would you have to do to the jar? You've got to break the top off of it, right? And so once it's open, you're all in. There's not a lot of other jars lying around to, like, save it in. There's no Tupperware that you're going to put it in. Once you cracked it open, it was open. You were all in, and she was all in. John, again, who was there, gives us another detail about the perfume, that it was worth, he says, a year's wages. I want you to enter the story, okay? Median household income in Mendham, which was shocking to me. I mean, I knew you people were rich, but geez, Louise. Median, <laughs> median household income in Mendham is $200,000. So let's just divide that up, right, and say two people are working, so we'll just say it's $100,000. So you're there, and this woman comes in, and she cracks open a jar of perfume that's worth $100,000. What do you say? Oh, that's a great idea, right? I mean, what do you say? Because remember, these guys are trying to finance it. They're trying to finance a revolution, a political and, and military revolution. And you know what revolutions need? Money. I mean, how are you going to feed yourself and, and the troops? How are you going to support the coming, the coming insurrection? How are you going to get the weapons and the rations? You're going to need some money. And I mean, of course, a core message of, of, of Jesus is, um, and, and his disciples was to the poor and the sick and the broken and the marginalized. 
I mean, imagine if we had that money and we could use that money to do this. What would that have accomplished for our message? What would it have, how would it have validated what we're doing? $100,000. And so when the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price, like 100 grand, and given to the poor. They were, did you catch the word, indignant. Anybody remember what Caiaphas was last week when Jesus was in the temple? Indignant. The exact same word. In the Greek in which it was written, it means they were angry and grieved to the point of pain. When's the last time you were indignant? Interesting to look at. I can't go into it today, but I think you should ask yourself, when, when you start to feel indignant, grieved to the point of pain, is there with them involved somewhere? Right? Am I righteously grieved right now because because of something that's gone wrong, or is it just really about me? Somebody didn't hold up their end of the deal. And as we've seen, that kind of, the kind of thought process and the actions that come out of that often lead to bad choices and bad places. And so the disciples, you know, the uh, week's gone on. They're not dumb. They saw Caiaphas's reaction and, and, and what the Pharisees had been doing to Jesus all this time. And maybe the, the story's out. You know, they're only down the street, Jesus, plotting to kill you. And so they start grumbling about it. And so Jesus, aware of this, as he always is, he says to them, I like this, aware of this. Next time you get indignant, by the way, with God, just remember, he's aware of this. Jesus says to them, why are you bothering with this woman? She's done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you. It's a very famous quote. Uh, I think that I, I've shared with many of you, uh, this quote is an intonation quote. I think the way it's always been taught is, you'll always have the poor with you. It's almost dismissive. Or you'll always have the poor with you. I, I think the better way to read it is looking at the disciples. Jesus looks at them and goes, you'll always have the poor with you. It'll be a mark of your ministry, and I think as a church, we need to keep that in mind. You'll always have the poor with you. But then here comes the straw that breaks the back of Judas, okay? But you're not always going to have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. And again, enter the story, right? Can you imagine the disciples? Hundred grand on the floor and in Jesus' hair. And then Jesus goes, no, 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 this was a good thing. Here's why. Because she's getting me ready to die. And my guess at this point is suddenly all the proclamations that Jesus made about dying before suddenly got real. Those things that seemed like, well, that's way off in the future. That's a later thing. Suddenly became a now thing. First, they thought he was going to be the Messiah. First, he was going to defeat Rome and restore Israel. And I mean, he needs to get, he needs to get at this because, Jesus, they're down at Caiaphas' house right now. What do you mean she's getting you ready to die? We, we, just, we just all celebrated you as the Messiah. Messiahs don't die. Jesus, what happened to Hosanna? Blessed in the name of he who comes in the name of the Lord. I mean, everybody in the city's fired up. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the priests, the Romans. I mean, Jesus, if you die now, if you die this week, what's going to happen to me? Put another way, whiff them. Now looks like death. 
It looks different than I thought it was. And I'm not sure I like the deal anymore, Jesus. This isn't what I signed up for. It's so interesting that suddenly they don't care all that much. You notice how suddenly they don't care about the perfume at all? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't worry about that. Wait a minute. Let's get back to you dying. Right? Suddenly their concern becomes them. You know why? Because they're human beings, just like you and I. And then Jesus says something pretty cool. He says something actually prophetic. You're actually, you and I being here this morning, are proof of Jesus' divinity and his ability to prophesy. Jesus says, truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, they're in a little house in Bethany, what she's done will also be told, and here's something interesting, in memory of her. It's not going to be told in memory of Jesus. It's going to be in memory of her. Why? Because Jesus knew what she was doing was so countercultural, so unwhiffing, so inhuman. She figured out there was something more powerful than what's in it for me. For her, whiffing changed to more of a W I F H. What's in it for her, for him? It's not about me. What, what good is this $100,000 perfume going to do? It's all about you. You realize this is love, right? She loved Jesus. Right? Out of reverence for Christ, submit yourselves one to another. No, it's about you. It's not about me. The disciples just weren't there yet. Isn't that amazing? This woman in Bethany got it. Now, John gives more details about what happened when she poured out the perfume. He tells us it was actually Judas who pronounced the indignation and fond concern for the poor. John, who was sitting in the room, right, writes about Judas. He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. My guess is all of them were disappointed. All of them were scared. But for Judas, this was just too much. I mean, I don't know why he was stealing. Maybe It's hard for me to believe that Judas thought, thought this, was a, this was his way to get rich to follow Jesus. Something must have happened. Maybe he began somewhere along the line, maybe that week, hedging his bets, keeping some money off to the side. Maybe it wasn't for him. Maybe it wasn't just stealing for him. But it was for the movement. We don't know. Maybe he started to see that this thing was going sideways when Jesus started talking about dying a little bit ago. And so he wants to make sure that there's a valid plan B, right? I mean, you got to hedge your bet. That's why Jesus says, no, for, forever they're going to talk about this woman who just comes in and snaps the top off the alabaster jar. No turning back. Judas, for Judas, he was just thankful that the money bag didn't have a top on it. And so here's why I think for Judas, uh, this was the final straw. Here's why I believe that this was the moment when, when he was done. Because the very next word in the scriptures are, then. Right then. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, tell me if this sounds familiar, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? Literally, almost word for word from the public speaking consultant circa First Fidelity Bank, 1989. What will you give me if I hand them over to you? 
Judas found himself a better deal. And so they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver, which is so interesting, the price that Judas got for Jesus. Theologians would tell you 30 pieces of silver was the equivalent price that an indentured servant, a slave, could be purchased for. Jesus, the king of all creation, is sold for the price of a slave, which really makes perfect sense. Some of you know sometime later the Apostle Paul would write to a church in the city of Philippi, and he would encourage people in that church, right, as I would encourage you, and I think he would encourage you, to people in this church, he said that in your relationships with one another, you should have the mindset of Jesus, who though he was God, did not use that to his advantage, but, and this is amazing, rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nation of a servant. If you go home and look this up, you'll see in, in other translations, it's translated slave. Jesus, or excuse me, Judas, sold him out for the price of a slave. But here's the truth, isn't it? When it comes to Witham, I mean, haven't you and I sold him out for less? How many things, how many times, and for what or for who have you been willing to trade in your relationship with Jesus? What's been your better deal? What could be? And look, when you and I have done that, most of us know this, when you get a little older, you're aware of it. How's that deal look now? I mean, do you even still have that job? You still have that boyfriend? Do you remember what you got on that test or in that class? But as I heard it put this week about Judas, his trade and ours, in that moment, in that moment it felt like it was the right thing to do. The trade made sense because when you have a whiff of mindset at work, what's in it for me? It leads to bad trades bad decisions, and dark places. And from then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. They were afraid of the crowds, right? And Judas said to him, I, I know you guys want to get him. I'm part of the inner crowd. I'll let you know when he's alone. And so the story continues in the way many of you know. The disciples prepare, and Jesus arrives at the Passover uh, for the traditional Passover meal. And when he walks in, Jesus does something totally astounding. Jesus, the most important guy in the universe, takes off his rabbinical robes, wraps them around his waist, and he washes the feet of the disciples, notice this, of everyone in the room. Jesus does not do what kings do. He does not do, uh, do what rabbis do. Jesus does what a servant is supposed to do. He assumes the role for which he was purchased, the role of a slave, and he assumes it for them. And he tells them, I've done this for you, I've assumed this position of servant for you, and now you are going to do it for others. And I, I just, again, I, you got to enter the story. Can you imagine the moment when it's Judas's turn? And Jesus is on his knees, washing the feet of Judas, and they both know that Judas has sold him out for the value of a slave. And now, even for Judas at this point, right? I mean, I would be calling Judas my enemy. Jesus is determined to be his servant. That is such a picture. I mean, that's a picture for your office, right? All that's going on in both of their minds as this is going on. Judas sold him as a servant. And Jesus chose 
to serve him anyway. So the meal's going on, and Matthew tells us that seemingly out of nowhere, as they were eating, he said, Jesus, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Now, you got to, again, you know the story, but you got to enter the story. Can you imagine? Nobody sees this coming. These guys have been walking together through hell and back for three years. This has got to send shockwaves around the table. To be like, you know, I, be like the Mets winning the World Series, right? Shock! It can't be true. And you imagine, though, just imagine Judas is sitting there going, oh my gosh. He knows. But what's, what's amazing here, and a lesson for each of us. Now remember, up until this moment, all of these disciples have been rather bold in their assertions that they have Jesus' back, right? Pretty sure about their allegiance to Jesus. At this meal, they're actually arguing over who's going to be the greatest in his kingdom because, Jesus, we believe. Later on, we'll talk about it next week, Peter declares over and over, I would never sell you out, Jesus. Not I, Lord. But at that moment, something very different was going on in the room. Check out their reaction, which is so unexpected. It's not, no way, Lord. We would never do that because that's what you would expect if you didn't know the story. The scriptures, Matthew, who was there and felt the emotions, Matthew wrote, they were very sorrowful. They believed it, right? They didn't dispute it. Not no way, Lord, they said, uh-huh. And they began to say, to say to him one after another, is it I, Lord? Tim Keller has this brilliant observation at this moment. He argues that the disciples have just revealed that each of them is having the exact same thoughts and the same worries as Judas. It's near the end of the Passover week. Jesus revealed himself as the Messiah. He, 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 he turned over all the ta- temples, or tables in the temple days ago, and now he's done nothing. And everybody in town is looking for a way to kill him. And the disciples are starting to think about their futures too. They're starting to think about their deals, what they signed up for. With them suddenly is in their minds too. And the only difference between the disciples and Judas at that moment is that Judas acted on it. Suddenly, they all realize, given the situation they're in, they might betray him too. What a question for Easter, right? It's a very human question. Is it I, Lord? And even the proud and the arrogant disciples, it occurs to them that night it could be them. They realized what you and I need to. You know, there's a little bit of Judas in each of us, isn't there? And so maybe this Easter we need to ask the same question and come to the same realization. In fact, this issue is so rooted in the depths of Scripture. Perhaps the oldest book in the Bible is the book of Job, and it has at its core the same question, what's in it for me? Satan comes to God and he says, you know, Job just follows you because what's in it for him? He isn't serving you, God. Look at him. He's got, he's got a good deal. He's just in it for himself, not you. He's using you. He's not after the blesser. He's only after the blessings. Change the deal, God, and he'll walk. I mean, do you see the irony in this moment? Jesus is serving God, and he's serving us. And most of us, if we're honest, I mean, just enter the story. I mean, at the depth of our relationship with God, so much of the time, aren't we just using God and serving ourselves? I mean, isn't there a little bit of Judas in each of us? 
How many of us have walked away from God because he isn't, it just, you know, I, I used to believe, why don't you believe anymore? Well, it, you know, things weren't going right. See, that's not the story of faith. That's the story of trying to get God to work for you. There's two very different religions at work around that table that night. And in, in every church today. People that look alike, act alike, sing the same song, sit right next to each other. That night, very close to Jesus, Judas was so close that, that, that Jesus could lean over and talk to him. But they have a profoundly different, different, different understanding of who Jesus really is and what his followers really believe. And so the debate begins to rage around the table. Who is it? Who is it? Is it I? Is it me, Lord? Because I'm starting to think I could. And John tells us at this moment, Jesus leans over to Judas, and, and so Jesus told him, what you're about to do, do quickly. So powerful, right? And it's just another reminder in this story that, please, for, for millennia, Christians have been accusing the, the Jewish people of killing Jesus. The Jews did not kill Jesus. The Romans did not kill Jesus. Judas did not kill Jesus. Jesus knew what was happening all along. Jesus, Jesus could have stopped it at any moment. He could have had Judas taken out by the other disciples right there, right? Peter's been carrying around a sword, waiting for somebody to use it on forever. Jesus could have just said, he's the guy, have at him. Nobody took Jesus' life. He willingly laid it down for you and for me and for Judas. What you're about to do quickly. Super interesting detail to remember. Do you remember who Judas betrayed Jesus to? Judas didn't go to Pontius Pilate or the Romans. He went to the high priest. The high priest has no authority to kill Jesus. He was, uh, for Rome, for the Romans, he was a religious figurehead that had limited authority in the state. So when Judas betrayed Jesus to Caiaphas, the chief priest, he's actually thinking this is going to be a religious issue. Maybe I was wrong about Jesus as a religious leader, and Caiaphas is right. So I'm going to go to Caiaphas and turn him in. It's going to become a temple problem. They'll probably expel Jesus. They'll probably discredit Jesus. They'll send him back to Nazareth or Galilee. But what Jesus did, or excuse me, Judas did not anticipate was that Caiaphas was in on it with the Romans. But when he understood what he had done, when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, because Pilate sent him, uh, uh, Caiaphas sent him to Pilate, the, the, the Roman. He was seized with remorse, and he returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. Isn't it interesting how the 30 pieces of silver, which just hours ago seemed so important, it was such a good deal just a couple of hours ago. Now it's meaningless. And when he came to himself, when he realized what he had done, and come on, man, how many of us have been on this side of the Jesus trade when what seems so important in the moment, the job, the money, the story, the pride, the reputation, being the right girl, the right guy, the sex, the grudge, what seems so important has no value. Judas gained 30 pieces of silver, and at that moment... It seemed like the world. But Judas lost his soul. And so look, I'm going to close with this concept. Super important. This story is pretty super convicting, right? Like, 
I mean, if you're me, you sit around and go, oh my gosh, I think I'm a Judas. I mean, there's a little bit of Judas in all of us. All of us who, who live have this Witham mindset. And it's not just in, in the world, it's, it's also in our faith. We think that, well, since we did this, God owes us that. And when we come face to face with who we really are and what we've done, it can lead to conviction, and that's good. It can lead to repentance, which means you change your mind and the direction you walk. That's good. But for Judas, it led to a really bad place. Listen to the worldly condemnation of the high priest. Judas realizes what he has done. And maybe you and I, uh, this Easter, come to that grasp of that realization. He realized what he had done. And so what does he do? He goes to his priests. And he goes, I've sinned, he said to them, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us? They replied. Here it comes. That's your responsibility. That's your responsibility. You're right. You're in big trouble. Your sins, your screw-ups, your abandonment of God, you're taking the better deal, your past, <laughs> that's your responsibility. You're going to have to pay for that. Which, of course, given the gravity of what Judas had done, led him to the path he decided to choose. Judas hung himself. He decided to self-atone for his own sin, to pay for his own sin. If it's my responsibility, then I guess it's an eye for an eye. And he went and he killed himself. Because he assumed there was no way home, there was no path back, there could be no forgiveness after what he had done. The priest told him and he believed it. Hey man, you're screwed, that's your responsibility now. There's no way back. You know, though Judas was there when Jesus told the story of the prodigal son, you know the one about the, the, the father who the son abandoned and wished him dead? He betrayed him. And he left him, and he took his stuff, stole from him. You remember the father in the story? Because you need to this morning. Judas forgot. The father stood out the home that day, day after day, waiting for the son to come home. The father's door was always open. All the son had to do was come back. And before, when he did, remember when he did, he couldn't even get the words out. The son had this plan. Well, here's what I'm going to do. I realize I could never be a son again, but I'm just going to be one of your hired workers. And if you just put me out in the field with your hired workers, with your servants, I'll earn enough money and maybe I can pay you back and get out of debt. The father doesn't even listen. He wants no part of it. He screams right over it. He embraces the son. He tells everybody, my son is home. Let the party start. Judas forgot that story. This Easter, don't you forget that story because there's a little Judas in all of us. Remember what Jesus said to Judas when he came to him with the guards in the Garden of Gethsemane that night? Jesus replied, do what you came for, friend. Knowing it all, everything, everything that he had done, what does Judas call him, or Jesus call him? Friend. This morning, this Easter Sunday morning, he says the same to you, knowing it all, everything that you have done, all the bad trades you have made, all the better deals you thought you were grabbing, this morning, Jesus calls you friend. Why did Jesus, Judas comes and he kisses Jesus, he betrays him with a kiss. Jesus asked them, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? It wasn't a question for Jesus. He knew the answer. It was a question for Judas. 
an insider, somebody like you and I, who often won't betray Jesus with a slap, but we might with a kiss. And if you have, and I have, I've, I've better dealed them a time or two. Please don't walk away. Don't take the path of Judas. I mean, it is your responsibility. I owe a debt, you and I owe a debt to God for the betrayal, but Jesus Christ, the servant of all mankind, that first Easter, you know, he was fully God and he was fully human. And because he was fully human, I think Jesus that night asked himself a question. What's in it for me? And the answer was, Katie Rubright, Betsy Hall, Ron Hadley, John Eisman. And somehow, it was enough for him. And that's the story of Judas Iscariot, a human of Jerusalem. It's the story of John Eisman, a human of Menem. And most importantly, it is the story of Jesus Christ, fully God, fully human of Jerusalem, who decided you were what's in it for him. Let's stand and close this off.